Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. So let's read Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar in all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, are my, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, those who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. I do, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father God, we thank you so much that you have revealed your word to us, that you are a God who doesn't leave us in the dark. But through reaching out to us, through communicating your will, your plan, the history, we thank you that we can come to know you, we can come back to you even though that we have walked away from you. And so, Father, we pray by your spirit that we would be transformed by your word and really hear what you have to say to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, can't you see? You belong to me. How my poor heart aches with every step you take. Every move you make, I'll be watching you. Now, this song, uh, Every Breath You Take, I'm sure you already all know it, uh, by the police, it's been called one of the greatest love songs ever written. Uh, people hear this song and they empathize with this heartbroken lover that this song is about. Uh, for many, this song's lyrics, it just conjures up these oh, lovey-dovey, sentimental feelings. But I'm sure some of you have heard before, but when the writer Sting heard of this response, he was a bit puzzled. Because this song wasn't actually, be, wasn't actually meant to be a warm and fuzzy song. This song was meant to be a little bit creepy. 
Because this song, yes, it is a love song, but it's a love song written from the perspective of someone who goes too far in their obsession over his lover. It's a song about a stalker. And so when you realize that, you, you read the lyrics again, and go, oh, that's, that doesn't sound so good after all. Uh, but many have often misunderstood this song, right? Not realizing it was meant to be unsettling for those who sing the song and hear the song. And I would say that it's a little bit like that with our psalm today. Because many think that this Psalm 139 is this nice, warm, fuzzy psalm. Maybe it's your favorite psalm. Uh, Maybe as you read it, you're like, oh, yes, comfort, so good. Uh, But this psalm too, I think if we think about it a little bit deeper, it's actually meant to be a little bit unsettling as well for those of us who read it and for those of us who sing it. And when we start reading the psalm, you know, nothing stands out, does it, from from the beginning. David starts... You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Okay, pretty standard. How well does God know David? Have a look at verse 2 to 4 with me. Whether David is at rest, right, sitting, lying down, or whether he is active, rising, going out, whether David is quietly thinking, or even before a single word is spoken, God knows it all. And here, no isn't just some, having some sort of awareness, right? This is like really intimate, deep, personal knowledge. God perceives my thoughts. He understands them through and through. God discerns all our actions. He evaluates, measures our actions, every single aspect of our lives, down to the minute details. It's kind of like how a, a loving husband understands knows his wife through and through, all her habits, all her quirks, all her passions and fears, because this husband pays close attention to her. This husband studies her. This is the kind of knowledge that God possesses of David and of every single one of us. And so if we were to summarize that in a word, maybe you can say, oh, God is omniscient, right? He is all-knowing with regards to our lives. But see, for David, understanding this theory, well, it's not just theory, is it? Because it it has an impact on him. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. What does God's knowledge of David mean? Well, it means protection, right? Being hemmed in. Right? Being surrounded with shields all around in all directions, and God's hand is laid upon David. He is safely within God's care. And David continues because not only does God know everything there is there, no matter where David goes. Have a look at verse 7 to 10. If David goes up, if he goes down, God is there. If he heads towards the dawn, that is the east, God is there, and if you head towards the sea, for Israel, that was the west, well, you guessed it. God is also there. There is no place on earth where David can escape from God's presence. And this goes beyond just the the geography of the situation, the physical either, right? The depths, or in other translations, uh, Sheol in the Old Testament is the name of the realm that all the dead people end up. Right? A place which, according to the Old Testament writers, in their understanding at that time, was an utter void. There's nothing in Sheol. Right? No knowledge, no remembrance, no praising of God. It's almost like existence just ceases to exist. But see, David understands that God's presence is so pervasive 
that even Sheol, even death itself, cannot separate David from God's presence. And so what is God's presence like? Verse 10, God's hand will guide him. His right hand will hold on tight to him. Again, you see, it's an image of God's strong grasp safely protecting David wherever he might be. And so again, if we were to summarize that little section, maybe you could say God is omnipresent. He is everywhere to me. And in verse 13 then, David actually gives a reason for the first half of the psalm. Why does he say that God knows him in all aspects of his life? Well, in verses 13 to 16, David gives us the answer. And the reason is that, well, God made him. Nothing special or odd about that, but just think about the way that David describes God's creation of him. Verse 13 formed, knitted together, verse 15, made in secret, intricately woven, verse 16, he saw my unformed body, muscle, bone and fibre in your body, intentional, purposeful, hands-on. And what's more, this process that David describes, only God can claim credit for it. The knitting and sculpting that is all done, verse 13, in the mother's womb, well, 15, verse 15, it's done in secret. It's woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. See, God is working miraculously within each womb before it, the mother is even aware of what is happening. And so David just has one conclusion. God's complete control, his complete involvement in creating David this way, it shows that God's control must extend to all aspects of his life. And so God knew how David's life would pan out. Every event in his book, verse 16, happens. God knows about it long before they occur. And so, again, what might you say about God? He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful in our lives. Now, up to this point, we could easily boil down these first 18 verses of the psalm into these three theological statements, right? You could easily do that. Uh, verse 1 to 6, God is omniscient. Verse 7 to 12, God is omnipresent. Verses 13 to 18, God is omnipotent. Wouldn't that be an easy way to memorize the psalm? But the question is, what is wrong by simply stating these three truths as a summary of Psalm 139, right? What do we miss? Well, first, do you notice how David responds to his own descriptions about God? Listen to David's own reflections, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts, God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am with you. See, for David... Knowing these things about God, it doesn't make him stop. It doesn't make him think, I've understood God through and through. But for David, it's, it's much too profound, too deep to be grasped by the simple human mind. It's sort of like theolo theolo theologians trying to nut out the Trinity, right? How does it work? All the, all the mechanical things about it. Trying to define 
what God's nature is, is like. At some point, we all must have to throw up our hands, no matter how smart you are, no matter how many PhDs you have, we have to throw up our hands and say, this knowledge is too much. I can only go so far. I can't go any further. My mind can't make any more sense out of it. And it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's not that it's illogical. It's not like it's a contradiction. But it's that God's nature, His greatness, His incredible intimate knowledge of us through and through, it's just too profound, too deep for our finite human minds to understand. See, David here isn't trying to fit God into this nice little box. He's not trying to describe all of God's features, right? But his reflections of God bring him to wonder. It brings him to his knees in humility before his maker. Now, a second thing that we would miss if we were to reduce Psalm 139 to these theological statements is that these theological truths to David are deeply personal. Now, look at the number of times he he addresses God personally and how he relates these truths to himself. Verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Verse 2, you know when I sit. Verse 3, you discern my going on out. And it goes on in the second stanza, where, where can I go? You are there, you are there, you are there. In the third stanza, you created my inmost being. See, theology isn't meant to be abstract, right? We don't just sit in a classroom, in a Bible study, nutting out all of God's attributes and go, whew, that was a good Bible study. Right? It's not meant to fill our brains up with information. Rather, it's meant to be there to help us build our relationship with God, to help us realize what God is like, what He is doing in our lives today. A God who isn't far off, up there in the heavens, directing things at a distance, but a God who desires to love us, to connect with us, for us to worship Him. Knowledge of God is meant to help us in our relationship with God by teaching us how to talk to Him, as we see in this psalm. And so what about us then? Has our well-formed theology and knowledge of God helped us to grow in intimacy with God? As we sit here Sunday after Sunday, hearing Pastor Mikey expound God's truths. As we sit in our Bible studies, have we allowed the teaching about God to draw you closer to Christ? Or does it stay neatly compartmentalized in our head somewhere, separated from our daily lives as we head back to work or school on Monday, you know, filed away only to be accessed again when the right Bible study question comes up? Now, I know for myself, this is a scary question to ask. Because I can find it so easy as I, as I learn more and more about God through His Word to simply respond by saying, wow, that's amazing, that's so cool. And that was totally me when I went to Bible college. I was like, every, every single lecture, I was like, oh, this is so amazing. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? As you read the psalm, you can see David is amazed by God's greatness over and over again. But the thing is, David goes far beyond that, doesn't he? Because David makes it personal. David uses that knowledge of God to build his intimacy with God. But now even in the verses that we've covered, you could say this psalm could easily end here, couldn't it? 
Right? David has described in personal detail what God is like, all-knowing, everywhere, all-powerful. And what a faithful declaration, a powerful declaration of who God is. But the psalm doesn't end there. It moves in a way that might surprise us. You might have noticed the song that we, that we sung doesn't include these verses. Verse 19. If you, only you, God, would slay the wicked... Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, that was a sudden jump, wasn't it? How can David so quickly go from praising God with now harboring this malicious intent towards other people? How can David, a man of God, be asking for a violent and cruel end to his enemies? Uh, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? You know, what, what are we to do with this? Uh, now, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into detail of how these hostile prayers work as Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, but we can just make an important observation here. And that is those who David hates, they're first and foremost God's enemies. Right? They're not people who David just simply has a grudge against. But these are wicked, bloodthirsty, violent men themselves who are opposing God. Right? They openly bring dishonor to God's name here. Verse 20, they speak of God with evil intent. They misuse his name. They're in open rebellion against God. Verse 21. Right? David's hatred has nothing to do with what they have done to him. But his intense anger is about how God has been insulted and offended. And so can you see God, uh, David's concern for God's name here? Especially if we've understood verses 1 to 18, right? The almighty, ever-present, all-knowing God who deserves all praise and worship. How dare they dishonor you? How dare they speak ill of your name? God you deserve all praise. Get rid of them. Get rid of anyone who is opposed to you. Get them out of my sight. And when you think about it, isn't this just another way of saying your kingdom come, right? May your rule, may your reign be so obvious, so everywhere that no one might dare to ever oppose you again. Now, these words might already give us an inkling that this psalm isn't entirely warm and fuzzy, but there's actually another aspect of this psalm which should leave us a little bit unsettled, uh, particularly as we went through the first 16 verses. I mean, as we read those verses, as, as we covered those, did you find a little, anything a little bit disturbing about those verses? Because the thing is, these attributes about God's power and knowledge, these truths are actually meant to be ambiguous, Right? I describe God's infinite power as something that is inherently fantastic and great news for everyone. But is it really? Now, a few years back, you might have heard how China was rolling out this uh, new social credit score. Have you guys heard about that? That was many years ago already. Uh, each citizen gets a score which either goes up or goes down depending on how you behave, how good of a citizen you are. Uh, and all this is done by placing surveillance cameras uh, in all the public areas. Uh, everything that you do is recorded and analyzed and goes into the score. So uh, all your searches, your posts on the internet and social media, it's all tracked. 
you help an old lady cross the road, your score goes up. If you drop rubbish on the road, then your score goes down. But that's not it, because this score determines what privileges you get access to or lose out on, right? Now, have a think about that. Would you want to live in a system like that? Is this system inherently good or bad for the citizens of China, where every single action is known to them, every aspect of your life tracked, measured, and has an impact on what you can access or not? Well, you might, you know, living in Australia with all the freedom that we have, you might immediately say, no, I don't want to live in a society like that. But it's actually a bit more complicated, I think, because it depends. Because if you are someone who loves the Chinese government, if you live well-behaved lives publicly praising China's rulers because you love what they're doing, then you'll reap the benefits. You'll get access to the best schools, you'll get healthcare discounts, uh, but if you step out of line, then this system is absolutely terrible for you, right? And there was a story about a journalist who spoke out against government corruption, and his social score was slashed so low that he couldn't even leave his city because he was barred from catching public transport. And so whether or not a ruler's immense power is good news or bad news, well, it just depends on where you stand with that ruler. And it's a similar thing to what we find here in Psalm 139. Is God knowing everything that there is to know about us a good thing or a bad thing? Is the fact that God is everywhere, that there is no place on earth that we can hide from Him, even after our life on earth that we can't hide from Him, is that good or bad? Is the fact that God is completely in control of my beginning, my present, and my future, is that comforting or is that scary? Well, it kind of depends on what side of God you're on. And so look how David has intentionally made Psalm 139 ambiguous. Verse 5, you hem me in before and behind. This is actually a neutral word, hem, all right? Because it can mean both to surround for protection like a city wall, like I described earlier, but it can also be the same word to use to describe enemies surrounding you, hemmed in before and behind by my enemies waiting to pounce, to attack. Again, verse 5, you lay your hand upon me. Verse 10, your right hand holds me fast. This can be a hand of comfort, of assurance, but again, it can also be one of judgment, of punishment as well. Verse 7, David surprisingly uses the word flee. Where can I flee from your presence? You only flee from danger, right? From your enemies, don't you? And so all these words, I think David has been using intentionally to introduce this unsettling ambiguity. God's infinite power isn't automatically good news for everyone because it all depends on where you stand with God. Yes, God's power can be comforting and can bring security, but it can also bring fear and dread if we're not on His side. Now, please hear me very carefully here, right? Because I'm not saying our all-powerful God is like a stalker. He's not some power-controlled human government, right? Our, goal, our God is not a power-hungry, paranoid dictator. Please get that right. God is just. He is righteous. God is loving and full of compassion. But my point here is that 
we need to realize that this psalm is warning us that even as we know these theological truths about God, right, that he is all-knowing, he's everywhere, he's all-powerful, even knowing that God is righteous and loving, agreeing with these things don't necessarily mean that you're in a right relationship with God, right? Knowing about God doesn't make you close friends with him. Just like memorizing all the personal life and history, all the career highlights of your, and all the stats of your favorite sports person or movie star doesn't mean that they're your personal friend. And so let's hear how this psalm ends. After expressing this ambiguity about God's attributes, after this great plea to, for God to remove his enemies, David turns his prayer to himself. Verses 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because before, if you thought David's plea to remove God's enemies was just a little bit self-righteous, then this destroys that thought, doesn't it? Search me, God. Know me. Test me. See if there's anything in me that might be offensive to you. David echoes how he started the psalm. He asked the God who has searched him and has known him to search him again. Test me again. Reveal to me my true self so that if I am sinning, if I'm exhibiting anything I described of your enemies, then God put me back on the right track. Lead me back in the way everlasting. Mold me, shape me to live rightly, to be in relationship with you, the almighty ever-present God. David humbles himself before God. He doesn't just presume that he's righteous and, and, and that's it. And the thing is, if we're honest with ourselves, we know how scary it is for someone to know us so completely as the psalm describes, isn't it? Every dark thought that we've had about those who disagree with us, the moments where we cross the line in anger and frustration, what we've done in secret that we just hope no one would ever find out. If we're honest, knowing that God is all-knowing, that should terrify us, shouldn't it? How can any of us dare to face God? And so why isn't the Bible a horror story? Why isn't the Christian faith controlled by fear? Well, I'm sure you guys all know the answer. It's the gospel, isn't it? Because God has sent His Son into this world to save us from this terrifying reality, right? Because all of our sins, all of our rebellion that God knows, it's not hidden from God. God chose to take that away, to take it from our shoulders and place it on Jesus as He hung on the cross. In fact, as we read the psalm, we could say Christ experienced all the terrible negatives of Psalm 139. He knew he experienced, he felt what it was like to be God's enemy. To be on the wrong side of God's infinite power. He felt that, he went through that so that we could only ever experience being on the right side of God's infinite power. All the positives of Psalm 139. So that the all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God, when He looks at us, He no longer sees our filthy, selfish, unloving deeds, but rather He sees the goodness, the perfection of His Son, Jesus. 
Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that too lofty to understand, to comprehend? But this psalm, even as we know this story so well, this psalm tells us that we cannot afford to take God's grace for granted. Knowledge about God, knowledge about Jesus dying for us on a cross, it demands a response, a personal response. Because Jesus' death on a cross is only good news if you choose to follow him. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, then can I really plead with you to really think about it, really make up your mind. Which side of this all-powerful God will you choose to be on? And I hope the answer is obvious, right? I hope the answer is obvious, especially when the way to be on the right side with this God has already been won for you. It's already been freely offered. You just need to accept Jesus' free gift. But for those of us who have already followed, chosen to follow Jesus, even if we've been following him for a long time, then let us remember that as we keep growing our knowledge and understanding of God, that needs to drive us to greater intimacy with God. That never ends, right? You don't reach a point where you're, you're good enough, godly enough, you know enough, right? And so let us remind ourselves what this looks like for David and see how might that look like for us today. What does growing in intimacy look like with God? It means, first of all, meditating on God's truth. As we know these things about God, let it sit. Let us take it in slowly. Next time you read, read, read a Bible in your quiet time, maybe next time you're reflecting on something you've heard from Pastor Mikey's sermons, let it sit. Don't just let your thoughts jump to another, another place. Don't just start thinking about scrolling through Facebook. What does that mean for me? That I know that God is all-knowing. What does it mean as I experience, as I look up and see Jesus hanging on the cross for my sins? Right? Let's dwell on God's truths constantly coming back to it throughout the day, throughout the week. Not simply reading it, moved on, tick, done, dusted. And so may I suggest next time you read something that really stands out, may you take a note of it. Maybe you have a, a notepad. I've got a little notebook that I have um, of a to-do list. How about note a truth that really stands out to you and remind yourself to keep going back to it that week. Another way that David here models intimacy with God is how he first talks to God, right? Okay, do you notice how David just constantly, he doesn't stop praising God for who he is. Knowledge about God, again, as, as I mentioned before, it, it's not meant to be collecting dust somewhere in the back of our minds. All of David's good and right insight and knowledge about God, having that, David can't help himself but burst out in song, in psalm, in praise. And when you think about it, how can you not, right? We are so blessed here in Australia, in Brisbane, uh, to know so much about God. You know, we've got AFES on our uni campuses. Uh, many of us have been to Ignite Conference, or hopefully, if you haven't, then you'll go to Ignite Conference in, in January. We've got, we are so blessed with excellent teaching, with God's word, even. We've got God's word so freely before us. We don't have to hide it away when the police come knocking. How awesome is that? 
And if that's the case, then we need to treasure that. We need to respond to that. And so in our prayers, let's, let's do that. Let's not just jump straight into listing what we want God to do for us every time we, we, we start getting on our knees. But let's first start by acknowledging God's greatness, His goodness that we've received from all this good teaching, from having God's Word before us at such convenience, just at an arm's distance. We can get it right away. Let us use our knowledge about God to draw us in, to participate in communicating and, and building relationship with our Heavenly Father. And if there's one way that David's prayer challenges us to grow in our relationship with God, then it's this really hard prayer that, that David mentions at the end, isn't it? To be asking God, to keep asking God, to search us, to reveal in us that there might be any way offensive in us towards Him. That we might plead with God, Father, please shine a spotlight on the sins that I'm not even aware of. Please help me see myself clearly for who I am and not simply who I think I am. Now, I can remember a few times where I've prayed that, that God would reveal my sin to me. And of course, as you, as you expect, sometime later, I do get confronted with a particular sin, uh, whether it be, uh, I remember at Bible college, realizing that my grades at Bible college was an idol to me. Uh, or maybe realizing that as I looked and reflected on how I was treating my, my wife and my kids, that I wasn't as loving as I ought to be. And when I discovered those things, when, when the Holy Spirit brought these things up and confronted me with it, the sense of guilt and shame was crushing. I wanted to be a pastor, and I'm doing this. But why did I ask God to reveal my sin to me in the first place? Why does God ask, sorry, why does David ask God to reveal this to him in the first place? Isn't the point of being made aware of your sin so that we can repent and grow? Grow in holiness, yes, but ultimately the goal is to get closer to God. Isn't that the point? And, and let's remember the gospel, right? We're not doing this to, to somehow earn our way to being on the right side of God, right? That, that, that's all been done. We know this. And, and we need to keep remembering this. If we keep accepting Jesus' gift, his sacrifice on the cross to take away our sins, to bring us on the right side of God, to bring us into life, then we are. We need to know that. But at the same time, if we accept that we are on the right side of God, then we need to live that way. And then we can boldly ask our all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God that He might continue to lead us on the way everlasting. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we're confronted with this psalm that is both comforting and yet also a bit scary as we really think through what it means that you are so powerful that nothing is outside of your knowledge, your control, your grasp, we thank you that you have provided the solution for us to only ever be on your good side. We thank you that Psalm 139 is not a horror story for us, but brings so much comfort and joy 
because Jesus has taken all our guilt, all our sin away. And so, Father, we pray that this truth will remain in us. And we pray also that as we sit in the knowledge knowing that we are on the right side of you, as we sit continuing to hear and be taught from your word, that this knowledge won't just sit stagnant. It won't be static, but it will help us to grow more and more like Christ each day. And it's in his name, for his sake, that we pray these things. In Jesus' name.